0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nopithanshul. Sports are a part of American life, yet there are questions surrounding the safety of some sports, like football. If you're a parent, how do you decide which sports your child can play? Coming up, we'll talk with two parents who have different perspectives on football, and we'll hear from a high school coach about efforts to make the sport safer. In recent years, attention has focused on pro athletes who played in the NFL and who later died unexpectedly or in violent ways. Their families donated the athletes' brains to science and what researchers found has been disturbing. More than 100 of these former football players had chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE. A doctor specializing in sports medicine will join us later to explain what researchers know so far about the degenerative brain disease. The latest case of CTE and a former pro football player made headlines when researchers considered the age of the athlete. I'm talking about Connecticut native and one-star tight end for the New England Patriots Aaron Hernandez. Before he died he was known as a convicted murderer. Here's Boston University neuropathologist Dr. Ann McKee last month after they released the results of Hernandez's brain autopsy. At 27 years old, he had an advanced stage of CTE. These are very unusual findings to see in an individual of this age. We've never seen this in our 468 brains. Uh, except an individual some 20 years older. Whether you follow football or not, how did you react to this news? Does it make you question watching a sport that can not only break a man's body, but with the amount of physical contact, his brain too? You can join the conversation. Email where we live at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter where we live. Certainly CTE has been found in other athletes, boxers, hockey players, but today we're focusing on football. My next guest knows the NFL well. Her husband played in the league for nine years. She knows about CTE too. Her husband was the sixth former NFL player to be diagnosed with the disease. From WUSF Studios in Tampa, Lisa McHale joins us now. She's director of family relations at the Concussion Legacy Foundation. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Your husband was Tom McHale and he played for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. When did you meet him?
2: I met him in college. Uh, We were both undergrads. He was four years older than I, but we met going into my sophomore year.
0: Tell us about him. Uh, People have images of what an athlete is, especially someone um, who's a a pro football player who ended up in that career. Uh, Tell us about uh, what it was like in college and his personality.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, everybody says their guy's the best, uh, but Tom truly was. Uh, you know, he had given up a full scholarship and starting position at University of Maryland in order to attend Cornell's uh, School of Hotel Administration. And so by the time I met him, he already kind of had a reputation on campus. There aren't a lot of, uh, you know... Um, Potential NFL prospects playing in the Ivy leagues, um, and particularly in, uh, in 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 his day, um, so he was he was well known, and yet he was, um, you know, very admirably um, humble, uh, really tremendous, engaging, dynamic, um, and of course very handsome uh, man.
0: <laughs> uh, for people who may not follow football, he was an offensive lineman, so he was a big guy.
2: He was. He was uh, quite large, quite a bit. I, I'm 5'2 a half. He was 6'4". And when I met him 260, by the end of his playing career, he would say one cheese steak uh, over 300, a uh, couple years in uh, Philadelphia.
0: Uh, he studied at Cornell, as you mentioned. So what were his dreams? Uh, he was good enough to make it into the NFL, but that wasn't the end game.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, Tom was somewhat unique in that he had a lot of uh, a lot of aspirations a bit beyond playing in the NFL. And, in fact, uh, his reasons for giving up the scholarship were that he knew from a young age that he wanted to uh, own and operate restaurants. And so when he kind of came to the realization in college that, that he was clearly at Maryland for one thing and one thing only, and that was to play football, and was concerned he wasn't setting himself up for his future uh, beyond the game, uh, so he, he gave that up to attend um, to attend the, the world's really leading school in hotel and restaurant management. I mentioned earlier
0: he played uh, in the Tampa Bay Buccaneers as a defensive lineman for nine years. Describe that period of your life, Lisa. What was it like uh, when he was in the NFL? You were starting a family. Uh, to walk us through that time.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, just slight correction. He played six years for the Bucs, then two for Philadelphia Eagles, and his final season was um, under Don Shula uh, with the Miami Dolphins in 1995. Um, but uh, not going to lie, it was an exciting life. I, I was very young when we married, just 23 years of age, and uh, just graduated Not, not uh, about nine months after graduating from Cornell. I moved to uh, Tampa, and we built a home together, and we had a lot of uh, opportunities, and um that we wouldn't otherwise have. And and certainly sitting in a stadium of, you know, 70,000 people and hearing your husband's name announced on the loudspeaker in in the starting lineup and um, being a part of the crowd is uh, very, it's an exciting, um, an exciting experience. Uh,
0: Was he injured uh, during his career? What kind of uh, injuries did he sustain?
2: You know, uh, in, in talk, if people would ask him later at, in his retirement, he would rattle off a, a, a lot more than than you know I really thought much about as we were playing. But mostly just broken and disjointed fingers and whatnot. He had been most injured in college; had uh, suffered a shoulder injury that required surgery. But in the in the pros, his. His main injury was he had a partial tear of his uh, medial collateral ligament in one of his knees, um, which did not require surgery. And essentially, a groin injury took him out towards the end of his career for quite some time.
0: Um, When he retired, uh, what was his mindset? Uh, Was he sad to leave a sport that he loved?
2: Again, I think Tom is a bit unique in that he decided after nine years that, uh, well, in large part, he was very anxious to get on to the next stage of his life and begin that, uh, you know, his dream of of getting into the restaurant industry. Um, he was also, you know, getting more concerned about the physical um, implications, the way this would impact him later in life and decided, you know, I've put a lot of wear and tear on my body. I think I'm going to call it quits. And so he actually had some opportunities to go in and play a 10th season, but decided, you know, I'm grateful for the time I had, I'm ready to move on, and uh, actually walked away from the game, which (laughs) I think is uh, not an easy thing to do. Um, But, uh, you know, as far as I could tell, he did it with uh, no regrets, no regrets at all. When did you notice his personality changing, Lisa? You know that it's such such a difficult question to answer because um, you know this disease comes on very very gradually and you know with twenty twenty hindsight you kind of look back and you look at things very differently and I you know I go back to even you know very very early on and wonder is it possible that CTE may have impacted him back when but. You know, because I, I can tell you the easiest way to answer that is that when it became abundantly clear, clear to me that things were very different, is really when Tom confided in me that he was uh, extremely depressed and that he had been for quite some time. Um, he complained about the physical pain to me for the first time, said that uh, that that just the pain of being on his feet all day, running around the restaurant and, you know, uh, greeting folks and and running the running the restaurant was uh, was just becoming too great. And he just wasn't enjoying it all anymore. Um, and it was and it was a very, very scary realization um, for several reasons. One, because d- that kind of depression was so contrary to his nature. And two, because he was the sole breadwinner in the family. I was raising uh, three young sons, the oldest of whom had very significant special needs.
0: Uh, I understand that uh, he was prescribed uh, large doses of, of painkillers. Uh, when did you find out that he had um, an addiction problem?
2: Yeah, again, kind of gradually, it was toward he was uh, nearing um, 40. When he confided that no, I'm sorry, you know what? That's not correct. But yes, that is correct. It was around 40 that it was brought to my attention uh, that he was deal that he had become physically dependent on doctor prescribed opiate medications for his pain, uh, and he and and he had been doing internet research to try to figure out how to wean himself off and get out of this, and had, had just been unsuccessful in doing that, and his behavior became kind of out of control because he had become um, not just addicted, but was abusing the pills, and it was very uh, obvious now that it was problematic. And so he did go under the treatment of uh, physicians to deal with his addiction. And what happened, Lisa? Well, uh, you know, um, he unfortunately suffered a couple of, of relapses. You know, the challenge I, I think for Tom and, and and clearly because of the disease is that while even when he was removed from the drugs and 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 any, any kind of substances, he wasn't himself. And it wasn't helping with the depression. It wasn't helping him get back his um, his just spunk for life. And he was clearly aware of that. It was really impacting him. And it, it just seemed like there was something else going on. We had no idea what that was. But I think because of all of that, I think Tom just in his own mind just couldn't um, – couldn't pull himself out. and I think it had to be incredibly disappointing and challenging for him. And ultimately he suffered a um, he had another relapse and ultimately suffered a uh, accidental fatal overdose. He was 45? 45. 45 years old. I'm speaking with
0: Lisa McHale. She's director of family relations at the Concussion Legacy Foundation. Her late husband, Tom McHale, was an offensive lineman in the, in the NFL. He played for several teams. Today she joins us from the studios of WUSF in Tampa. We're talking about football in light of all the attention in recent years about CTE, this degenerative brain disease or chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Um, after he passed, Lisa, when did you decide to donate his brain to science?
2: Well, you know, uh, this kind of a decision is something that needs to be made very, very quickly. And so, you know, as I had said, neither Tom nor I, um, you know, we had no knowledge of CTE. I had never heard of it. I don't believe he had either. And we would have countless conversations. Uh, you know, just, you know, wondering what is going on and what can I do to help and, you know, and and so it wasn't as though we um, anticipated this in any way. I just received a call because of the nature of his death and who he was as a former athlete. It, his death went public, and so I, it was brought to the attention, I would imagine, of the researchers. And I received a call from Chris Nowinski, who is now CEO of Concussion Legacy Foundation and one of the co-founders of the research center at Boston University. And he called to request my husband's brain for scientific study.
0: When you uh, donated his brain, were you convinced that the researchers would find something?
2: I actually um, ironically told Chris, you know, you're not going to find what you're looking for, Uh, because it was to the best of my knowledge, I never knew Tom to have suffered any concussions. It wasn't a conversation that we ever had. And he had said it was, you know, it had to do with looking at the connection between concussions and later life difficulties. So I was very certain that Tom would be a control subject.
0: And coming up, we're going to hear from a doctor who specializes in sports medicine about what they know today about what causes CTE. Uh, when you found out, Lisa, that um, your husband had this, this disease, uh, you
2: were shocked, I'm, I'm sure. And then what did you, what did you do? You know, when it was first uh, explained to me that Tom had this disease, CTE, it did not mean a great deal to me because very little was known at the time. I had never heard of it. Um, And I figured, okay, Tom has a rare disease. Um, Okay. But it was in learning that Tom was actually the sixth former NFL player out of six tested that was positive with this very, very rare disease that doesn't exist in the brain. unless there is exposure to trauma, that then says something very significantly to me. And so I was asked by the research group if I would go public with Tom's findings. And without hesitation, I said, absolutely, because this is something, um, clearly there's something significant going on here and people need to know. That was back in 2009? In January of 2009. Uh, fast
0: forward now to, to 2017. Much more attention on CTE on the the number of former NFL players uh, whose brains have also been donated to science. I think more than a hundred have found have been found to have CTE. Uh, what's been your response with how the NFL has uh, has has uh, changed their views or even how they responded initially and today?
2: There is no question that the NFL has engaged in this strategy of willful ignorance for as long as they have been able to do so. Until I think the numbers of deceased NFL players diagnosed with this disease have become so great that they were, I, I would say, forced to finally concede. Uh, what most of us is, has been obvious for quite some time, that clearly there is a connection between playing football and NCTE. Uh, I
0: mentioned earlier you work now for the Concussion Legacy Foundation as Director of Family
2: Relations. What's your role there? It, primarily, I work as the liaison between the research team and all of the families who um, who make this donation to the research center, and um, we have very strong um, connections with the families because we rely on them for comprehensive medical and clinical histories on their loved ones. That, of course, um, make the neuropathological findings that much more meaningful.
0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy nalpith Again, from uh, the studios of WSF in Tampa, Lisa McHale is with us. Uh, her husband, her late husband, Tom McHale, was a, a former offensive lineman in the NFL. Uh, he... He died uh, from a fatal overdose uh, when she donated his brain to science, He was the sixth former NFL player to be found with this this severe uh, brain disease, this this degenerative brain disease of CTE. We're going to continue to talk about that after the break. Learn more about CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, and whether the sport has changed to make it safer for the pros and for young athletes. Do you watch the NFL? Do you allow your children to play football? Tell us why or why not. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpethanchel. Earlier, I mentioned reports that former NFL player Aaron Hernandez is the youngest athlete who's been found to have this degenerative brain disease, CTE. There are questions whether the damage to his brain impacted the choices he made while living. Do high profile cases like this make you question the safety of the sport at the local high school or college level or in the NFL? Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Linda McHale is with us from WUSF Studios in Tampa. Her late husband, Tom McHale, was a former lineman and the sixth former NFL player to be diagnosed with CTE. What do researchers know about this disease to date? Joining us joining me in studio now is Dr. David Wong, Director of Sports Medicine at Quinnipiac University, Clinical Director of Elite sports medicine at Connecticut Children's Medical Center. He also serves on the board of directors for the Brain Injury Alliance of Connecticut, it's BIAC. Dr. Wong, welcome to where we live.
3: Oh, thank you.
0: So I've been trying to make sure I don't trip up saying chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE. Tell us what this is.
3: Well, as you've already noted, it's a neurodegenerative disease. Uh, It causes a progressive loss of function. Uh, It's characterized by a protein deposition in the brain called a tau protein um, and basically what we're what we know is or what we believe we know is that it's a result of cumulative trauma for so the head
0: when you mention this protein I think of when we hear about cases of dementia Alzheimer' is it similar
3: yes exactly there are actually many what they're called tauopathies which are a protein deposition with a, in the brain causing neurodegenerative changes um, there are, so, there are long lists of these. Uh, Alzheimer's is the most well-known, but we do certainly now understand that CTE is one of the big ones as well.
0: Uh, when was the first time that, I guess, uh, researchers, doctors started talking about CTE? And in the beginning, there's a lot of attention on do concussions cause this, but the science has uh, uh, developed since then. And what are the, the causes behind it?
3: Yes, yes, it has. I mean, honestly, you can go back into the early 1900s uh, with boxers and dementia pugilistica, which was described way back then um, is, is the beginning of us understanding this. Mm-hmm. Um, it was quiet for a while, but then it was sort of resurfaced again as we started to talk about football. And, it, and you rightly point out something that I've had to deal with a lot, which is that concussions and CTE are spoken in the, in the same sentence uh, too often. And in fact, with the movie that came out, which is a really good movie about Dr. Malu and CTE, mm-hmm. um, they named it Concussions. And uh, so that I see all these children with concussions, and the, of course the parent's natural thought is, oh my gosh, is this CTE? And I do still want to clarify that these are different entities. Uh, concussion is a transient neurologic deficit. CTE is a result of cumulative trauma with or without concussions, at least mm-hmm. that's my belief at this time.
0: We heard uh, from Lisa McHale earlier uh, during her husband's nine-year career within the NFL. She never knew if he'd had a concussion, but he was an offensive lineman. So we're talking about repetitive hitting over and over and over.
3: You're absolutely right. The line, every play is a blow for a lineman. And, you know, the other players, you know, you see the hits, you see the collisions, but they're not every play. But in an offensive lineman, it's almost every
0: play. And uh, when you mention boxing, boxers are they more likely to have, to develop CT than a, a pro football player? From what we know,
3: well, that's a great question as well. Um, we, again, we don't have all the science to answer this. In fact, to be honest with you, we we're, we're just learning, um, so there's all, we we don't know more than we know. So with regards to boxers. Uh, do we see cases of, uh, or have there been documented cases of CTE? I believe there have. It's not to the same numbers as, as football players, but nor are there the same number of boxers. And boxers are also vulnerable to the to the traumatic brain injury, the bleeds and the things like that that cause, uh, you know, that are catastrophic. So do we see it? Yes. Um, uh, uh, old retired boxers uh, with Parkinsonian characteristics and things like that. For sure. Um, Do we know what the incidence is? Mm. No. We just know that we see a lot of them.
0: You mentioned uh, old boxers, Muhammad Ali.
3: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm. For sure.
0: Hockey players.
3: Yep. And, uh, you know, and again, you know, the hysteria, so so to speak. And Mm. again, it's rightly so that we're talking about this because it's important. But we also want people to keep the perspective because there is is at least a, a published case of a person who thought they might have CTE. So they yeah. they did end their own life, and then it was found out afterwards they didn't have it.
0: what <laughs> like you mentioned we can't ignore uh, the number of, of pro football players. They were focusing in on football that yeah. have their, their families donated their brains. Yeah. After, I'm just going to read a list. You know, I, I come from Pittsburgh. Uh, former Steelers like Mike Webster, uh, he physically yeah. declined uh, uh, after he died, um, diagnosed with CTE. Justin mm-hmm. Strelzik, an offensive lineman, drove his car the wrong way on the highway. Died. Uh, he was found to have CTE. Terry Long, offensive lineman. He he killed himself by drinking antifreeze and died. He was found yeah. to have CTE. Yes. Junior Seau didn't play for the Steelers, but he was a a talented player. Uh, died by suicide. CTE. Mm, yes,
3: for sure. It, it, you know, the, there's so many cases. Mm-hmm. I I grew up and am raised in Minnesota, and yeah. so uh, I'm not a Pitt, Pittsburgh Steelers fan. But uh, <laughs> we had uh, several of our players, and most recently, uh, Fred McNeil. Um, who were diagnosed with CTE. So it's it's definitely prevalent. The question that we can't answer is is the, is the incidence. In other words, people who donate their brains to the, uh, the Sports Legacy Institute have concerns, in most cases, uh, or thoughts that there might be CTE, and they find a high level of CTE. But we don't have a denominator. We have a numerator, uh, but we don't have a denominator. And but we're working on it there's some great scientists working on this and finding ways to diagnose it in the living when we do that we'll be able to gain a lot more information
0: This is where we live, and today with me, Dr. David Wong, Director of Sports Medicine at Quinnipiac University, Clinical Director of Elite Sports Medicine at Connecticut Children's Medical Center. Today, we're talking about CTE, Chronic Traumatic Encephalopathy. Uh, With us from uh, Tampa is Lisa McHale. Her late husband, Tom McHale, played in the NFL. He was the sixth former NFL player to be diagnosed with CTE. Lisa, I'm sure you've been able to hear uh, Dr. Wong walk us through CTE, what we know, what we may not know. Um, I'm just curious what your thoughts are and how we should be moving forward when we're talking about uh, making these sports safer, not only, again, for the pro athletes, but for the kids playing today.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I agree so much with what, I mean, everything Dr. Wong has said. And and in large part, you know, everything that we, as much as we know, there's so much more that is unknown. But I will say, having experienced this disease and knowing hundreds of families who have, is that I would caution people against minimizing how devastating this disease is. Uh, We don't know the incidents, but we do know now that football, that playing football does present a risk to people. And and, and and that's what people need to bear in mind. Um, even with the NFL players, it, it is very, very true that the 110 out of 111 brains that was just released in the in the Journal of the American Medical Association paper is from a heavily biased sample, without a doubt. But it's also the case that finding that many positive cases of CTE among NFL players means that it cannot be rare in that population. And that's scary because it shouldn't exist at all. And so I think every parent needs to think about the implications for kids. Um, There are a lot of indications that the younger they play, the more vulnerable they are um, to sustaining uh, injury to the brain. It's during a period of very rapid development. And so we need to consider a lot of things as we are thinking about the kinds of activities that we want our kids to engage in.
0: And you can join the conversation. Have you wrestled with this idea, should I allow my child to play football or even any other contact sport where you, you worry about uh, brain injuries, uh, frequent concussions? Although we did hear Dr. Wong say con- concussions does not mean that you're going to have CTE. There are other factors, including um, repetitive hits to the head or tackling when we see that in football. But I want to ask you, Dr. Wong, uh, when we think about when kids play uh, in um, you know, elementary school, junior high, High school, you know, when is there a time where they shouldn't be shouldn't be allowed to tackle?
3: Yeah, it's a great question, um, and one that again we're we're trying to sort out and actually have a, a, an answer that is meaningful, other than just arbitrary. But let me say this: it, taking care of so many children with concussions, um, they are neurologically immature. They the the time to heal for the pediatric patient is significantly longer than the adult patient. And with the, you know, with them being neurologically immature and being more vulnerable um, I, I and having more prolonged courses, I think we have to take a cautious approach with our children. Um, where do we draw this line? Where is neurologic maturity? I mean, honestly, we, we know that in terms of men, uh, <laughs> neurologic maturity is somewhere in the, 20s. you know, 20s, exactly. Um, so, thoughts are out there now and the age 14 has been thrown around. Mm. And it's, it, it, it makes sense. You know, we, we don't understand it completely. So let's just, you know, let's be a little bit more protective. But what, but what about 15? What about 13? Don't have those answers yet, mm. but we are <laughs> doing what we can, or at least the or- sports organizations are. And one of the things that they're trying to do is limit those exposures. So each organization, each sports is trying to limit exposure, knowing that repetitive blows is is an issue. But as for the age, when to draw that line, each organization is looking at it differently. Hockey has different lines that they drew. They change from, you know, Wee to bantam in terms of checking. Um, you know, soccer has made changes in terms of heading the ball. Um, so everybody's trying, but we're, you know, we're... It's trying.
0: Uh, and later on, I should say, we are going to hear from a high school coach, and we're going to hear from some parents about some of the questions they have. We're going to hear about initiatives that have been enrolled in recent years um, uh, at schools to protect children uh, when they play uh, this game. Uh, but I'm curious, to, uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about, we, we've been focusing on the brains of these deceased players that have been studied. They've been found to have CTE. Are doctors getting any closer to diagnosing this in a living person? Or is there a way to find this?
3: They're getting closer. <clears throat> Actually, just in the recent month, uh, some new ideas have come out, some of them out of Boston, where where the Sports Legacy Foundation is, um, looking at a cytokine uh, a, a type of protein uh, in the s- blood or serum that might be able to pick up whether someone has CTE. Uh, and then there was the PET scan on the Fred McNeil case, a PET scan uh, with a radioisotope uh, injected before that attaches to tau protein to see the pattern of tau protein in the brain. These are, you know, cases of one.
0: Mm.
3: So we, but they're promising because this is important. If we can start to diagnose it in the living, then we're really going to have a better grip on this thing.
0: Uh, What would treatment look like if we, if you were able to diagnose it in a a living person? Because we, we know there are still advances trying to be made on how to help people with Alzheimer's.
3: You're exactly right. I ton of resources has gone into Alzheimer 's work, and we still don't have all the answers here mm-hmm. so dealing with a degenerative process or a tauopathy um, you know there are there's certainly research being done, but what what the treatment will be uh, a cure someday I, I don't know. <sighs>
0: Well, we heard Lisa mention this earlier about we can't ignore uh, the number of, of former athletes who've died, who've been found to have this, but also the circumstances surrounding their deaths.
3: As, as she rightly pointed out, in all, almost all of these cases, it's usually something uh, traumatic, accidental, um, depressive, you know, severe depression. And if you look at the brain and where the CTE is, you'll see that it's in the area where decisions and emotions are made. So mm-hmm. if you look just at the, at the PET scan from the Fred McNeil case, the, the midbrain area, uh, the fornix, the hippocampus, these areas, which have to do with memory and, and then the amygdala with emotions, these areas, if impaired, will lead to poor decision-making, driving on the wrong side of the road, drug abuse, alcohol, it would lead to poor decision-making.
0: What did you think when you uh, heard the, the news that Aaron Hernandez at 27 had a severe case of CTE?
3: Well, <laughs> that was a tough one because here is a man who's a convicted murderer, and now we're saying, and we could say, and we can legitimately say this, he made that decision because of, of of CTE. It wasn't like that before. He didn't. You know that decision. That was a part of his disease. Um, that's a challenging one. But is it? Does it surprise me? No.
0: Lisa McHale, your reaction to Aaron Hernandez?
2: Yeah, I I, I got to say it, it, that case for me was very convicting. Um, when I had read about the circumstances of what he was. Um, what he was in jail for, I didn't want to believe that that CTE could cause um, that kind of extreme behavior to that extent. And so, but in learning that how advanced his disease was at 27 years of of age, um, I, I just think there's no question in my mind. As Dr. Wong says, when you understand the areas of the brain affected and you understand the ability of this disease to literally transform our loved ones, um, it, its it would be unreasonable to suspect that it didn't have something to do with uh, what happened with, oh. with Aaron.
0: Lisa, I touched on this earlier with you, but I, I wanted to ask you again, I know that you were, I think, I believe you were part of a, a lawsuit uh, that uh, former uh, NFL players against the NFL, it was settled. What now when people turn on the tube and they watch uh, the game coming up? What, what uh, safety um, guidelines have been put in place to protect these pro athletes who've been playing since they were kids?
2: well i think there's a lot has been done within the nfl to change rules that will definitely lead to um safer you know safer play for athletes not the least of which was was uh, limiting the numbers of allowable full contact uh practices during the season and so that will absolutely make a difference but they have a lot of um Things in place within the NFL to be able to protect those athletes, and I think again, um, the 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 question for parents and what people need to really focus on is how is it trickling down to the college level, the at the the high school level, and the youth level.
0: Um, again, your your husband passed away at a young age, forty five. Um, do you think it would have helped him if he'd known that he'd had this disease?
2: I would like to think that it would have been nice for Tom to have known that there was a neurological reason for what he was experiencing um, and that he wasn't just failing in being the man that he wanted to be. Um, and I and I would hope that for those struggling today, that the knowledge of this disease um, You know, the fact that we now have a reason for these behaviors, because a lot of the behaviors don't make our loved ones particularly lovable at times, um, and that that it has a name. I, You know, CTE, now we we know what it is. We have a name for it. I'm hoping it diminishes the stigma um, so that these guys can come forward. They can talk with their families. They can seek help and treatment and support and resources. Lisa McHale,
0: Director of Family Relations at the
2: Concussion Legacy
0: Foundation. She joined us today from the studios of WSF in Tampa. Again, her husband, Tom McHale, died at 45. He was later to to be found his brain to have a severe case of the degenerative brain disease known as CTE. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nolpothanchel. Despite all the attention on this disease, football is still pretty popular. We're going to talk with parents and a coach after the break and find out what kinds of changes are being made to make football safer. What do you think? Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. So how do parents and coaches and schools respond to reports about brain damage in athletes? Uh, Do you worry about if your child plays football or hockey or another sport? In studio with me, Dr. David Wong, director of sports medicine at Quinnipiac, clinical director of elite sports medicine at Connecticut Children's Medical Center in Hartford. He's also on the board of directors for the Brain Injury Alliance of Connecticut. And joining us now, Harry Bellucci, Hartford Public Schools coach, chairman of Connecticut's Coaches Committee. Harry, welcome to the show.
4: Yeah, great to be here.
0: So, with increased attention on CTE, um, talking about head injuries, uh, how has that changed your outlook on the sport? What are your feelings as a coach?
4: I mean, it's obviously a concerning thing when you see that uh, players at the NFL level going through this. And I would say we have to uh, revisit history. Um, I think a lot of these players that have come up with the CTC. CTE, have played football in the 80s, 70s, 80s. I played football in the 70s, not to date myself here. (laughs) But, you know, you were taught to use your head all the time. Put your head in his chest. Nobody teaches football like that anymore. Um, So I think USA Football, which has an incredible heads-up program, over 7,000 youth programs throughout the country now, have certified coaches in the Heads Up program. So football now is being taught to keep your head out of the play. That wasn't true at all in the 70s or the 80s. Uh, Matter of fact, if you did get dinged, what they would call, uh, you know, the protocol back in the 70s and 80s was shake it off. Mm -hmm. Shake it off, get back in the game, little smelling salts. That never occurs Mm -hmm. today.
0: When did Heads Up start?
4: Heads Up started, I believe, Ten, 11 years ago, I'm not quite sure of the date, Mm -hmm. but it's a program that's used now uh, in Connecticut by all high school Mm -hmm. coaches uh, for a long time. Um, And I think uh, the next generation of NFL players, you'll see a huge difference in that. Mm -hmm. You will not see uh, heads being used. And I watch NFL every week. And I still see them using their heads, and I don't understand. And
0: these are big guys.
4: <laughs> yeah, and, and, and world-class athletes. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm a little perplexed how they're still using their head during a game. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all saw on Monday night that horrifying scene, and that's a perfect example. He went in with his head inducted, which is really bad football. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was, I'm just shocked at that, that level they still do it. in. In my team, if I saw a young man put his head down like that, he'd be out of the game and mm-hmm. on the sidelines and say, We're not going to play you if you don't follow the rules that we set for football.
0: I wanted to ask, Harry, how young is too young to start playing?
4: Well, that's a good question. Uh, my brother in law, who, um, Eric Mangini, who was a head coach for the New York Jets and the Cleveland Browns, has three sons, and they all, of course, love football and they all want to play. And he. The first one is playing now and is in junior high. He believes that you should start playing uh, contact football in junior high. Before that, uh, his two younger sons have played flag football, which teaches you the basic skills um, without, obviously, the, the contact. So I, I think that's a pretty good um, denominator, that playing um, beginning in junior high, 13, 14 years old, uh, in a heads-up program. Is, is probably the best way to go.
0: I wanted to bring in uh, a couple of parents into the conversation now. Joining us by phone is Dr. Keith Penny. He's an orthopedic surgeon at Charlotte Hungerford Hospital in Torrington, also a football team physician, and three of his sons all play football. Dr. Penny, welcome to the show.
1: Hi there. Thank you for having
0: me. Um, so as a, a parent of, of children who play sports, especially football, you know, what's your take on how the sport has changed?
1: Well, I, I sort of have a unique uh opportunity to review on this issue since uh, I, I played football myself. As you mentioned, I have three sons who have played football. One currently at the college level at Wesleyan University, uh, but I'm also a team physician here locally for two local high schools. Uh, so I sort of see the issue from all sides. Um, as a parent, that's a different situation. Um, you know, I can appreciate what, what you know, It has been said, certainly my wife and I have had some long conversations about whether or not to let our kids play, but to me it's a a question of relative risk. Uh, I see all the uh, things that have been done to make the game safer, and to me we're certainly moving in the right direction. Uh, Is it ever going to be completely safe? Probably not. Um, Any contact sport is going to have some relative risk involved, and you just have to assess as a parent, what you're willing to accept and move forward with.
0: Coach Bellucci, are, are players more likely to get hurt in practice versus a, a game?
4: Uh, well, now in Connecticut, we have a very strict um, rule about how many, how, the number of minutes that you can uh, hit in practice per week. Most coaches don't even use those minutes. Uh, um, squads are pretty small, uh, 30 to 40 kids, and you can't afford to lose kids in – Um, you can't afford to lose. In practice, probably you get more ankle sprains or, you know, stingers in their shoulders as opposed to concussions because there's not a lot of contact like that and you're not really flying around as hard as you do in the game. So as far as maybe a concussion, I would say that happens mostly in a a game situation.
0: And in terms of uh, concussions, we know kids get them. Um, how, what's, what kind of training do uh, the, the coaches and other people on the field have to make sure that if a kid is in a, in a rough hit that you're not sending him back out?
4: Well, Connecticut coaches are, probably are at the forefront in the country as far as training. Every high school coach, whether you're a head coach or an assistant coach, has to take a course that is run by the CIAC uh, for concussion training, and that has to be updated every single year. Um, every practice and every game has a trainer um, who is, uh, you know, if you think the kid has mm-hmm. been dinged, if they see that, they'll we take him out and then he goes through the concussion protocol. Mm-hmm. So in Connecticut, uh, uh, for instance, we, we we did the Rio report, which is if a kid gets a concussion, um, and I'm sure a doctor knows young mm-hmm. knows about this, they, you know, they have to file it into this system. Now the national average was 6.2 per thousand. Um, in the last two years, Connecticut was at 4.2 and then last the previous year 3.9 so that tells you in Connecticut they're doing an outstanding job the coaches are in Connecticut are we're being smart and we're making sure that this doesn't occur I know in the last two years um, two seasons I've had four concussions um, three mild ones and one pretty severe one so I think you're keeping our head out of the game and really focusing on that is, is, is making a huge difference in Connecticut.
0: I'm going to bring another parent into the conversation. Before I do that, though, kids love to, you know, when they're playing, they love to play. Any concern that a a, a child or, you know, a, a young man will say, that a teenager will say, well, I'm not hurt, coach. Put me back in.
4: Well, if, if I see that collision and I hear that collision, I, it doesn't matter to me what he says. Um, he's taking his helmet off, and he's getting evaluated right then and there. I'm, I, I'm a father of three daughters, uh, and everybody always says to me, would you let your daughters play football? Well, I, in fact, did let my daughter play football um, at a, a Hall High School, and uh, it was a great experience for her. So, yes, I would.
0: Catherine Snedeker is executive director of Pink Concussions. She's a mother of three sons. Catherine, uh, you're, not, uh, you're not a supporter of football. Tell us why.
5: Um, it's a pretty broad statement, but um, I am just listening to the show. You know, uh, the NFL is going to be very pleased because it sounds like everybody, hook, line, and sinker, has really sucked up their marketing program, Heads Up Football. And if you actually read the one research study by Zach here on Heads Up Football, um, which I haven't gone through with Zach, I also was in the um, congressional hearing where the NFL had USA football lied to Congress about the results of that. The American public has been has been given a marketing plan by the NFL called Heads Up Football about reducing concussions. That's just upsetting to me because parents don't know the real risk. And I was in the NFL headquarter offices when this marketing plan was created and then research was added later which didn't support its beliefs. So no i would not let my parents, my children play based on the research that i've read which very few people have actually read and is suppressed most of the time do my have my sons had concussions yes in lacrosse mm. in life in recess concussions happen in all sorts of places, so I don't think you can protect them, but I think the true risk of playing tackle football under the age of 14 has been suppressed, and parents don't know the risks.
0: Uh, Dr. Penny, uh, I wanted to ask you to respond uh, to Catherine's concerns about uh, parents not knowing the risks of football.
1: Well, I I actually agree uh, in the sense that we don't know the long-term ramifications of youth sports uh, through high school and then the you know, uh, sequelae down the road. Uh, this honestly is in sort of a burgeoning area of research. As Dr. Wong had stated, we, we you know, know very little, to be honest. Um, I, I think we've made great strides. I think the incidents are all down across the board at all levels, uh, but to determine when it's safe to play, uh, if it's safe to play at all, ultimately, ultimately is certainly a big question mark. Um, and and just knowing that is sort of a, a difficult thing that I think all the parents have to deal with on a, on a personal basis.
5: Uh, coach. It's actually, if you look back in history, um, you can see every 20 years a burgeoning of parents that are concerned about their youth playing football. And I was just reading a 1960s article in Parents Magazine where the American Academy of Medicine was and at that time, too, the American Academy of Pediatrics, all believed that football should be prohibited under the age of 12. So we actually were making strides further in the 60s until I believe that um, money got involved. I mean, if you go to a pediatric brain injury conference and you ask these doctors off record if children should play football, they say no. You put a microphone in their hand, and the NFL has so much money in not one person's research, but another academy's research, another institution's research. Nobody can go on, no doctor can go on and really talk about the truth about youth
0: football. I'm going to get the other- coach to respond to you, Catherine. Uh, coach uh, Harry Bellucci, Harvard Public Schools coach and chairman of Connecticut's Football Coaches Committee. What do you think of what Catherine's saying?
4: You know, I think Catherine has some valid points. Um, I don't think it's necessary for kids six, seven, and eight, and nine years old to be playing tackle football. Mm. There are a lot of skills to learn when you're playing football that don't require tackling. Um, uh, Like I said, I think a kid starting football at 12, 13, 14 years old is fine. Um, The fact of the matter is, you know, in high school football, after four years of playing, 6% of those kids go on to play college football. And probably even a smaller number of them have even finished their careers in college football. And, and I know there's a concern, but at a place where I work, at Harford Public High School, and I've been a head coach since 2004 there, but I've been a high school football coach for 38 years, um, from 2004 to last year, between football scholarships um, and, and, and academic scholarships, Harford High football players have received $2.7 million in scholarships, and this is due to football. And... These are opportunities that, where I work at Hartford Public High School, these kids need, and it and it changes lives. Um, there is risk, of course. There is risk. There's risk in th- taking a family ski trip and going down Black Diamond at Stowe. You know, there's risks everywhere. Um, I know Lisa is uh, has an initiative on her website about girls soccer and heading, and how they're trying to take it out of uh, of, of girls soccer. And my daughters play soccer, and that always worried me. So there are risks in everything.
0: We're going to have to leave it there, but I want to thank uh, Harry Bellucci, Harper Public Schools coach. Also, Catherine Snedeker, thank you for joining us, Executive Director of Pink Concussions, and Dr. Keith Penny, Orthopedic Surgeon at Charlotte Hungerford Hospital in Torrington. Dr. David Wong, we thank you, too, for your expertise. Uh, time is short, uh, but we appreciate your time. we got a couple listeners wondering about CTE and rugby, so we'll try to revisit this conversation uh, in the future. I'm Lucy nopith Thanks for listening.